Hi, this is Jim Flick. I've been at First Baptist Keller for about uh, about almost 41 years now, and uh, have been uh, blessed to be able to uh, to teach our folks here. We're with a senior group, as you can imagine. I'm one of the the older folks, and uh, you don't promote out of our class, so you know how old it is. Anyway, I want to share with you today from uh, from Luke's Gospel in chapter nine. I, uh, in the years that I've taught, I've always kind of uh, taken a little bit of license with the, uh, with the quarterly in as much, I think, sometimes that uh, they overlook a lot of things that I think are important. And uh, the reality is that there's very little, uh, if anything, in Scripture that is not important. And I, I take a little extra time to look at some extra verses because, number one, they give you a little bit of background on, uh, on what we're about to get to. And the, uh, the second thing is, is there's some really, some really neat lessons to be learned from these as well. So turn, if you will, and I'm going to ask you to take, uh, to take your Bibles and, uh, and open them to the ninth chapter in Luke, because we're going to look at some other scriptures as well as we do that. It, uh, this is essentially the same way that I teach. It's, uh, it's interesting to, uh, to talk just to a microphone rather than to a class, but uh, bear with me as we do that, and uh, we'll do the best we can. So starting in chapter 9 in the 10th verse in the book of Luke, it's, uh, it states this. It says, And when the apostles returned, they gave an account to Jesus of all that they had done, and taking them with him, he withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. But the multitudes were aware of this and followed him and welcoming them, he began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. Now when in verse 10 it talks about, he said, he withdrew by himself. And of course, guess what happens as soon as he withdraws to himself trying, I'm sure, to get some quiet time with the Father, then multitudes were aware of what he was doing, and they followed them. And, of course, as soon as he had that opportunity, guess what he did? Two things. Number one, he began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing, i.e., he was ministering, once again, to those who had come to see and share with him. And the day began, verse 12 now, and the day began to decline, and the twelve came and said to him, send the multitude away, that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and get something to eat, for here we are in a desolate place. But Jesus said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless perhaps we go and buy food for all of these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And of course, as you well know by this time, if it were 5,000 men, there were obviously uh, many more folks than that. And of course, all of them would have had an opportunity to eat. So here you have another situation where all of a sudden, instead of Jesus saying to them, to the apostles, hey, go ahead and send them away, he said what? The same thing that we saw in verse 11, and that was minister to them. In the years that I've been teaching here at the church, I have actually had folks in, in part of our Sunday school class who have called in given situations and have asked me this question, is it okay if I do thus and such? for so-and-so? And the answer to that always is, 
and I would share that with you to, uh, to whomever is listening, that whenever you have an opportunity to minister to anyone, take that opportunity and do it. And that, was, uh, that is the way that I encourage our folks, and I would encourage you folks, literally, to do the same thing. And if you have an opportunity to do, to do that, uh, take it. You know as well as I that uh, very often there's uh, groups of folks that only uh, you can minister to, that others would have no knowledge of a need, but you do. And so take those opportunities to uh, minister with a cup of cold water and, and do that and reach out to those folks and minister to them just as Jesus did. The other thing that I'm fascinated about this text in, in uh, feeding these 5,000 is the, the question essentially from the disciples was, we only have two or five loaves and two fish. And not having perhaps as much confidence in our Savior as the multitudes did. They're wondering about where are we going to do all of this? And of course, Jesus said, uh, he said to the disciples, as in verse 14, he said, just have them recline to eat in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all recline. And, and Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed them, he broke them, and he kept giving them to the disciples to set before the multitude. And they all ate and were satisfied, and the broken pieces which they had left over were picked up, 12 baskets full. Now, I don't want to be critical of the disciples here, but, but the text, for me, uh, leaves out a very significant question, and that was, why were there no questions from the disciples to Jesus saying something very simple that would have happened, uh, I think, if you and I had been there, and that would go like this. He said, how in the world did you do that? And here you had five loaves, two fish, and we fed literally thousands of people from what would appear at the outset to be non-existent, uh, non-existent food. And yet, you don't see any reference to that in the text. Now, that doesn't mean it didn't happen, and I certainly wouldn't want to imply that. But it's fascinating to me because th th there has to have been a lesson that the disciples learned at that point in time, and that was one of submission to the will of the Father. And I think very often we have to experience the same thing. And that is, in, in, in my own life, it, it's a daily struggle, and that is submitting my will to the will of the Father. And there are times when it seems like, uh, you know, I do what I want to do when I want to do it. And that may not necessarily be what the Father desires, and, and it's a continual uh, I don't want to say a battle because it's not really a battle, but I have, to, I have to continually keep in mind that it's not about me, that ministry is not about me, reaching the kingdom is not about me, but doing the will of the Father. And that's, uh, that's a lesson I've had to learn. I'm uh, essentially, no offense, I'm an old man at this point in time. But it's something that I have had to learn over my lifetime and I continually have to deal with it every single day, and that it, it's not about me. All right, let's go on. In this, <clears throat> the next section of my Bible is entitled The Ministry, ministry of Prediction, and it starts in verse 18. And I want to talk about verse 18 specifically because it's, it's, 
it's really pretty neat to me, and I think there's a lesson here for all of us. And he said, and it came about that while Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them, and he said, who do the multitudes say that I am? Now, the first thing that jumps out to me is in the, in the very second line, it says, Jesus was praying how? He was praying alone. And I'm convinced in my life, and I see this in, in my own daily quiet time, that it is imperative for me to get alone and by myself and clear my mind and then involve myself with intercessory prayer to the Father when my mind is not preoccupied by something else. And now that's me. That's the way that I have to do it. But interestingly, in verse 18, that's exactly what Jesus was doing. And he needed that time alone with the Father, just as you and I need that time alone with the Father. And of course, later on in the verse, it says he questioned them. He questioned the disciples, saying, who do the multitudes say that I am? And that's a very, a very interesting question. And I'm of the opinion, and this is just my opinion, but I'm of the opinion that it's a very leading question on, on Christ's part when he asked them that. And of course, in verse 19, and they answered, and they said, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others, that one of the prophets of old has risen again. And I find that an interesting response, too. Of course, he asked that, but... <clears throat> But if they knew, if they knew when Jesus asked that question, who he really was, I would have thought that they would have answered it a little differently. And of course, they, they answered him literally. Well, some of the folks say that he's John the Baptist, and some of them say that he's Elijah, but others, one of the prophets of old. And Jesus said to them in verse 20, and, and this is absolutely phenomenal. He said, but what? The key question, not in verse 18, but in verse 20, and that is, but who do what? Who do you and I, who do you say that I am? And he's, he says here then, and Peter answered, and he said, the Christ of God. Now, interestingly, in that response that Peter made, the way it's written, and I am, and I am uh, certainly no, no uh, Greek or Hebrew scholar, but the description I saw of that response was that that did not necessarily, the way Peter said it, did not necessarily establish messiahship on the part of our Savior at that point in time. So that having been said, I want you to turn with me to Matthew in the 16th chapter in verse 17. I'm going to do that here in just a second. Matthew 16 in verse 17, and I want you to read what the response is to the same question, essentially to the, to the same event, but how it's written in Matthew rather than in Luke. And actually go to, uh, to verse 15, Matthew 16, verse 15. And it says, And Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter's response here in verse 16, he said, And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now my Bible, which is the uh, New American Standard, 
has that in quotes. And of course, Peter's response, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, the same response that I had when I uh, made my profession of faith back in 1974. I was, uh, as some of you may be aware, I was almost 30 years old before I figured out what I was supposed to do. But Peter, in the Matthew text, he got it right. He said, thou art the Christ, the Son of of the living God. And the way it's written there in the Matthew text versus in the Lucan text is uh, is much more definitive and I think a, a better description. Obviously, that's that's just my opinion. All right, let's go on. That, by the way, in, uh, in, in this Lucan text here is probably, according to a commentary that I was reading about the text, it's probably the definitive statement to this point in the text, and obviously it is because Jesus, that's the same question that he asks of us individually at some point in our life. He said, who do you say that I am? When I became a believer, as I mentioned back in 1974, we had a church out in the West Coast, a good friend of mine, a dear, dear saint, after I had expressed my profession of faith and what I had done to the church, he asked me this question. He said, tell me who Jesus is. And I was able to say to him without any question at that point in time that he is my Savior and the Son of God who has provided me salvation and reconciliation to the Father. And you know what? It, that's, a, that's a great question. And I have often used it to, uh, to ask that same question of folks who were, you know, that I was sharing with. And if you want to find out where someone is spiritually, in, in their walk, if, if there's questions or concerns in your outreach efforts that you have, ask them that question because their response will tell you a great deal about how far they are on this road to, to sanctification, if in fact they are on the road. So anyway, just a thought as we, uh, as we share that. All right, verse 22, or I'm sorry, but 21, verse 21, he said, but he warned them after Peter had made that response, he said that you are the Christ of God. He said, but Jesus warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man, and, and I, th this is a very, very significant verse, and if you've not out, or, uh, underlined it in your Bible, go ahead and do so because it's significant. He says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. This is the first passion prediction at, at this point in time. Now, can you imagine if you were a, a disciple at that point in time, and he's, as it, uh, as it says in verse 18, he's with the disciples. Peter has just made this, made this profession. And then he, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were present during that, th that discussion, if you will, I would probably have wondered, what in the world is Jesus talking about? And it, uh, as I mentioned, it's the first pre uh, predicted or prediction of the, uh, the passion that Christ would go through. But I have to believe when they heard it, they must have scratched their heads and wondered, what in the world is he talking about? 
And then he changes direction a little bit in, in verse 23, and I find this personally absolutely fascinating. In verse 23, he says, And he was saying to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, go with me back a bit. When uh, when the Romans developed crucifixion, it was very common for every victim to carry at least a portion of his cross on his back to where he would be destroyed on that same cross. And here Jesus has just shared with the, or the uh, disciples that he is going to be killed and raised up on the third day. And then he starts telling the disciples that if any of you wish to come after me, then he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, in verse 24, he says, For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for what? For my sake, he is the one who will save it. So essentially, what is Jesus telling not only the the disciples at that point in time, but you and me as well? And what's he saying for, for us to do? And that is to deny ourselves. It's, it's, not, it's not in our, our normal, what's the word I want to say here? It's not normally what we would do, is what I'm saying. A friend of mine was commenting one time, if you wonder how, uh, how self-centered we become, he said, do you find you have to teach your children to be selfish? And those of you who have children know full well that uh, we learn to do that on our own, don't we? But Jesus is saying something to them that if, if I were there and in the condition that they were in would have been totally counterintuitive. And that was, if anyone wishes to come after me and be my disciple, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily. And that is something that we all must do each and every day as, uh, as we follow Christ. Now turn with me now, if you will, to Luke in the 14th chapter. And I want to pursue this just a little bit with another text in Luke 14, 25, because Jesus explains a little, a little further what he's talking about here. Verse 25 in Luke 14 says this. He said, now great multitudes were going along with him, i.e. Jesus here. And he said, and he turned and said to them. And this is, these are tough verses. They're tough verses. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Well, when you look at verse 16, I, my, I'm guessing, obviously, because uh, I don't know who's, who's listening at this point in time, but I, I could make a, a pretty good estimate at this point in time that if you are listening to this, that you have a great love for your family, as I do. I've been blessed with a, a wonderful wife and children and grandkids and 
brothers and, and uh, in-laws and, and wonderful people who I love and I care a great deal. There is nothing for my family that I wouldn't do if it were within my, my power. But Jesus says very clearly to these multitudes, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, i.e., who does not hate his family, he cannot be my disciple. So how do you reconcile our, uh, our responsibility to have, uh, have nurture and care for our families and yet then have the kind of a relationship with them that Christ describes here? And for me, and this is just for me at this point in time, but I said, well, the way I interpret that is that, that what Christ expects of me personally supersedes those concerns that I have for my family. Now, does that mean that I don't take care of my family? No, that's not what that means at all. But what it means is that as I prioritize things in my own life, that I need to make sure that I am in, in putting Christ first in everything that impacts me from day to day. And that's a difficult thing to do, and I'm convinced, for me anyway, that that is part, that, that is part of this process of sanctification. And I find that the older that I get, the easier it is for me to understand what it means to prioritize my responsibilities to Christ in relationship to my family. And that, uh, it, for me, it's taken time. And I would encourage you to, uh, to measure that each and every day and, and just keep that in mind as we, uh, as we pro th uh, proceed through the life that, uh, that God has given us. All right, let's go back to, uh, to the Luke 9 text. And we're in verse, uh, verse 24. He said, For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Now, what I see in this verse very simply is this. When he says, whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. I think of Stephen. When Stephen was stoned, and if, if you recall, submitted to that, it's, uh, it's amazing to me that, that I, I don't know I would hope that I would be able to do it just like Stephen did. Uh, I, I pray to that end uh, every day, but it would be a difficult decision, would it not? But he said, whoever loses his life for my sake is the one who will save it. And I pray that that would be my portion should such a time come. In verse 25, he goes on to say, For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and he loses or forfeits himself? Very simply to me, Christ first. Now the question that, that I would encourage you to, uh, to kind of think about is how do we, how do we implement as, as just mortal human beings, how do we implement that kind of a mentality into our lives each and every day. And it comes down for me to two words, and that's actually three words, I guess. God's will first or Christ first, either one.
And that's what we must keep in mind as we go through this day to day. Is it easy to do? Not for me, and I suspect you either. But nonetheless, that's what we're called to do. That's the goal. That's what Christ desires of us as his children, as his church, as believers. Now, verse 26 also becomes very revealing as it's, uh, as it's written in, uh, in Scripture. Verse 26 says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed, when he, when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. That's, uh, that's pretty simple, isn't it? And he said, whoever is ashamed of me and my words. So what Jesus has said in, in Scripture, what, what the entirety of Scripture says about the deity of Jesus Christ is what we should cling to each and every day, never losing sight of an opportunity to share what Christ has done for me and for you as well. All right, I want to go on a little bit. In verse 27, Jesus says, I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who shall not taste death until they have seen the kingdom, or they see, I'm sorry, they see the kingdom of God. A very interesting verse, number one, and one that's uh, a little bit difficult to interpret, but I'm going to suggest to you that the pronoun you, the fourth in my, my Bible, it's the fourth word, he says, but I say to you truthfully, that he's talking here about Peter, James, and John, those, those disciples who were with him. And the reason I say that is because of where, where Christ goes in the text in the subsequent verses, all right, when he talks about the transfiguration. All right, now verse 28. It says, And some eight days after these things, it came about that he took along Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. Now let me ask you a question. As we saw it in the last, the last little vignette earlier in this chapter, I said, what was Jesus attempting to do when he, when he went off to be by himself? And that was once again to pray. All right. In verse 28, he says, He took Peter, John, and James, went up to the mountain to pray. Now go back to verse 27 when he says, But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. I would suggest to you that the reference in verse 27 to the kingdom of God is exactly what Peter, John, and James are about to witness in, this, uh, in these next few verses. Another thing that I find absolutely fascinating about Scripture is this, is that you, you can take eight or ten verses, particularly of this text that we're looking at today, and it is absolutely mind-numbing when you sit down and try to analyze all of the, all of the theology that's, uh, that's wrapped up in the text that we see here. The verses are easy, relatively easy to understand, but they're full. They're full of the presence of a sovereign God 
and his son Jesus Christ. Now verse 29, remember in verse 28, he went up, they went up to the mountain to pray. And guess what he's doing in verse 29? He was praying, and the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. You remember back in Exodus when Moses went up on the mountain and was talking to God? And when he came back down, they couldn't even look at him. They couldn't. Why? Because being in the presence of the sovereign God of the universe changes people and things. And that's exactly what you see here. Jesus, in his incarnation at this point in time, he's praying to the Father. His clothing became white and gleaming. If I were Peter, James, and John at that point in time, I probably would have been dumbstruck, having watched right in front of my eyes this supernatural experience of of watching Christ pray. And look what happens in verse 30, and behold, and behold indicates something that happened relatively quickly. What happens? Two men were talking with him, and they were who? Moses and Elijah. Now turn, turn back to Malachi, last book in the Old Testament, Malachi in the fourth chapter in the fourth verse. And it becomes, for me, pretty, pretty cool, very, very revealing at this point in time. In, in Malachi 4.4, or 4.5 actually, 4.4 and 5, he said, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. In verse 5, and this is really what makes reference to what I'm talking about here, he said, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children of their fathers, lest I come smite the land with a curse. And, of course, that became ultimately John the Baptist. We know that from the Matthew text, and I believe it's chapter 11. But here you have Jesus on the mount, and here's Moses and Elijah. Now, what were the condition of these? Essentially, of course, Moses, we know, died. Elijah carried to heaven in verse 31. But they were appearing in glory and were speaking of Jesus' departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. I.e., now you go back to the earlier text when we talked about the first, remember it was in, uh, in verse 22 in chapter 9, when Jesus told him, he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, raised up on the third day. And all of a sudden, then you, you look ahead, and, <clears throat> and they're appearing in glory. They were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. They already knew about that. And when you look at the first chapter in the book of, in the book of John, in the beginning, was we're talking about Jesus here, all right? Now, back in the Luke text in chapter 9, in verse 32, he said, Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep. But when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and two men standing with him. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane when uh, the the troops were about to come for Jesus? Remember what they were doing? (laughs) Once again, they were sleeping. What's fascinating to me in this text is that here's Moses and Elijah who are are talking with Jesus. And and what are Peter, James, and John's doing? They're asleep. And he said, verse 33, then, or 32, the last half there, he said, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. 
And it came about as they were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. The reason that that last statement is in there, he said not realizing what he was saying. Once again, bless his heart, Peter missed it. He said, you had Jesus, i.e. the Son of God, and Moses and Elijah. And by stating, well, let's just make three tabernacles, i.e. the the implication with Peter's comment was that we have three equal individuals here, and certainly not the case. And that, that reality is the reason you see that statement at the end of the verse. It says, they were not realizing what he was saying, all right? And that's Peter, bless his heart, open mouth uh, before you uh, engage your brain. And that's exactly what he did. Now, verse 34, and watch, he said, And while he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were, they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Now, you remember, once again, going back to Moses in Exodus, when he was up on the mountain, you remember who was there in the cloud, and that was God himself. In verse 35, and we'll close with this, he said, And a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And as we close, turn to Matthew in the third chapter in verse 17. You remember John the Baptist had just uh, had just baptized Jesus. And you saw, of course, Christ coming up out of the water. And actually, go back to verse 16. And after being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Well, I don't know about you, but if I had been there and I had seen the cloud and I had heard the voice, I suspect that I would never be the same once I'd experienced that. And here you have in verse 35, this same voice of God coming out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And then verse 36, he said, when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone and they kept silent and reported to no one in those any of the things they had seen. And as I mentioned, and I think for me it certainly is true, that if, uh, if this had been the case uh, and I had been there, probably uh, wouldn't uh, have said anything for, for some time. Anyway, that will take care of today's lessons. Uh, I hope it was uh, helpful to you. I, uh, I, I love to share the word and, uh, and what's in it and uh, pray that uh, you will be blessed the remainder of this week as we gather again on Sunday to uh, once again celebrate our risen Lord.